Good morning. Hi, y'all. Um, so, what Audrey didn't say about Alpha is that doing Alpha uh, makes you really cool. Really cool. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to put these on. So, like, how cool is that? Okay. What you're not able to see, <laughs> and in fact, with these on, I can't see you either. Um, what you're not able to see is that on the side of the leg here, it says Alpha Scotland. So, isn't that awesome? You too can be cool <laughs> by coming to Alpha. Man. <clears throat> I was asked to do that, but never mind. Um, <laughs> The other thing is, as well as Alpha, there's a Try Praying. Um, And if you have given one of these to somebody, or if you would like to give one of these brilliant little booklets, which just takes anybody, um, Christian or not, religious or not, through seven days of just short introduction to prayer, if if you'd like to give that to somebody, then um, more can be obtained, I think, from Heidi or um, can get those. But if you've given one to somebody, um, then... How about the follow-up with the question, how did you get on with that? What, did, it, did it help you at all or whatever? Or um, how did you get on with it? I found day three particularly helpful or whatever it was. Um, so do reach out with that. And I've got to give another plug, which is on the 21st of September at Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, um, there's a, a day conference on um, anxiety and stress called Cast Your Cares. There are leaflets on this um, on the information point. And Helen Thorne is from Biblical Counseling. Uh, and um, speaks frequently at occasions like this, uh, is speaking, and somebody called Dominic Smart is also speaking. Um, and so I'm, <laughs> so I'm stressed out about this. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I'm a great advert for coming along because uh, you cast your cares uh, on the Lord. Uh, it should be a very, very helpful day indeed, looking at anxiety and stress and how it affects us and how it might be affecting people that we love and what we can do to alleviate the stresses and strains of um, daily life. To Psalm 8, um, which is what we're looking at this morning. Psalm 8. Um, now it's, 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 it's not just daft to say that Psalm 8 comes after Psalm 7, um, because the first seven verses in the book of Psalms um, are full of constantly referring to what's wrong with people, uh, the wicked, uh, those who have turned away from God. And it gives us um, what we find elsewhere in the, in the Scriptures, just a really true, honest um, picture of what human beings can be and how human beings aren't just being individuals and expressing themselves. There actually is a right and a wrong. There is a true and false. There is a good and bad. And there is a God who is good and true and right. And he cannot live with, in his presence, that which is bad and false and wrong. And so as well as laying out some of the depravity of human beings, those first seven Psalms also talk about God judging that. And then we come to Psalm 8, and it's as if we suddenly are presented with the good news that there is a different, not a contradictory, 
but a different angle on the same problem, and that is that God has made us brilliant and amazing, and when we see Psalm 8 in the sweep of the whole Scriptures, he has done something about the broken, fallen depravity by sending his son. So we're actually, you've, you've just found Psalm 8 because I indicated it, so we're going to read it, and then straight after that we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, and then um, I'll lay out a few things. It's traditional in these summer Sundays um, for the service to be over by half past 11, just to keep it within the hour. Um, so I'm going to speak at triple speed, just so we're not short on content. No, I'm not. Let's read Psalm 8. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I just said Yahweh because you'll see if you've got it written in in, in your Bible there that the first Lord is in small capitals, which indicates that it is the name of God that is being used, Yahweh. And um, if ever a psalm demanded that you actually say Yahweh, not Lord, then it's this one. Um, Oh, Yahweh, oh, Lord, how majestic is your title in all the earth. Wrong. (laughs) How majestic is your name. So God gave his name to the people of Israel through Moses so that they could call upon his name. We'll come on to that in a few moments. And so the last thing you want to do is then say, well, thank you, Lord, for giving us your name, but we think it's better if we replace it with a title, Um, which is something fundamentally wrong in that. So uh, we'll stick with Yahweh in verse 1 and again in verse 9 at the end. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Yahweh our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So, this is a psalm um, about the sovereignty of God. He is majestic. He is above. He is enthroned. And uh, he is the one who alone gives dominion. So, this is a psalm about the sovereignty of God, the glory of God in creation, but the glory of God in what he has done with humanity and why he made us. It's a psalm about what God um, has given the world human beings for. So let's work through the, the, uh, the psalm a little bit, pulling out some themes, and then we'll um, see why the Bible thinks this is a psalm about the Messiah as well as a psalm about us. So, O Yahweh, our Lord. I'm just going to go through it almost sort of verse by verse and pull out a few things. 
our Lord. So this is a psalm for a people. It's not just a psalm for individuals who are taking it to themselves. It's not, O Yahweh, my Lord. Now, David does that um, elsewhere in another psalm, Psalm 16, for instance. But um, here he's thinking about the whole people together. So you look around just now, uh, who's around? And he is our Lord. That means that we are defined as a people by him being our Lord. So primarily we're not defined by just having, happening to be in the same place on a Sunday morning at the same time. This isn't like going to the cinema where you're all watching the same film but you've got about zero relationship with the people next to you, often by preference, unless of course it's with your family. Um, <laughs> I dig myself out of that one. Uh, this is church. This is the people of God together. And what defines us is that this God is our God. But it also, therefore, makes us distinctive because Yahweh was not any other God. All the other gods had names around about. So when, when the psalmist, when David says, Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, He's saying, none of the other gods are ours. We don't want any of them. We want you. So that little phrase, O Yahweh our Lord, just captures beautifully. It's something you can begin to feel, because this is poetry, so we need to feel it. He's saying, um, not I am his and he is mine, but we are his and he is ours. So it's a wonderful binding thing. It binds us to the Lord, but it binds us together. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are sovereign. You are the majesty. You reign over everything, over all the earth, all the land. And so David here says, well, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Um, we might ask ourselves, what is in a name? Our names are not that important to us as carrying meaning, the meaning of the word, for which you should be thankful. My full name is David Dominic Smart. David means beloved of God. Fine, I'll, I'll take that. Um, Dominic means ruler, and smart obviously means, you know, my daily appearance. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not your ruler. Nobody would have me. <laughs> but in this case, the names are significant. And the idea of somebody's name is that's the person. It encapsulates, it expresses the person. Yahweh. Best way we can understand what that means is probably since it, it sort of connects with, with a Hebrew way of saying to be. There isn't a Hebrew verb to be. But those four letters together express this idea of being. And probably the best way to translate what Yahweh means is I will be what I will be, which is why it's an expression of sovereignty. I won't be what you want me to be. I won't be what some bigger, powerful, external force compels me to be. I will be what I will be. It's an expression of sovereignty. So this name became like another way of talking about God himself for everybody. It's a handle on who God is. It's a way of them grasping his character and nature. So, in the rest of the Psalms, let me just read out some references. Um, and in the rest of the scriptures, 
the temple in Jerusalem is the earthly residence of God's name among his people. That's where he will make his name to dwell. He is there. We can pray to him by calling on his name. The name of the Lord protects, Psalm 20. The Lord saves by his name, Psalm 54. His saving acts tell us that his name is near. He is near, Psalm 52. So the godly trust in his name, Psalm 33. They hope in his name, Psalm 52 again. We sing praises to his name, Psalm 7, 9, 18. We rejoice in his name, Psalm 89. And the love and the fear that belong to God alone are directed toward his name. We love his name, Psalm 69, 119. We fear his name, Psalm 61, 86. So the name is another way of speaking about God himself. In all the earth, God is sovereign. There isn't anywhere that you can go. There isn't anywhere that people live where God is not sovereign. We don't make him Lord. We either acknowledge it or not. But he is Lord everywhere. So you've set your glory above the heavens. So there's a slide coming up which will just uh, uh, may, may help us a bit with the way that... So this is um, the ancient Hebrew conception of the universe. Don't worry about trying to read the writing because it's too blurry. Um, but I'll, I'll turn my back on you, if I may, just whilst I talk about this. The, the, the ancient Near Eastern view of the universe and, and the world was that the, the world was a disk. So that's the bit going across the, the horizon there. It was a disk, a bit like Terry Pratchett's disk world, but better. And uh, underneath it, you've got Sheol, the abode of the dead. And then you've got these things going down, which are the foundations of the earth and at the edge there, you see these things called the foundations of the heavens. And on the earth, um, Eretz, the same uh, as we've got there in verse 1, you've got the mountains and the sea and there's rivers and all that kind of thing. And that's where we live. So God made the earth and formed the dry ground and then inhabited it just as he'd inhabited the sea with the fish and everything else that, that are on there. So what we've got in Psalm 8 is lots of echoes of Genesis 1 and 2. And then... Uh, the, the, the sky is held in, if you like, by this, this sort of layer called the firmament. And the sun and the moon go up and round the firmament like that firmament, like that. Um, you know, from the rising of the sun to the going down are the same. Um, and the clouds are in there, the waters uh, are in there that come down from that layer called the waters above the firmament. So echoes of Genesis there. So that's why in Genesis you could have rain falling before you got rivers and stuff being around and water coming up in a water cycle going on because the waters were coming down from the waters above the firmament. Clouds are formed there. And then above that you've got the heavens. And the heavens are where all the gods live in the ancient Near East. And our God is victorious because he has done battle against all those other gods and beaten them. So he is, as we've got on the picture there, he is God above the heavens. So when we read the heavens above the sun, moon, and stars and everything else, we're talking about the place where the gods dwell and God is above the heavens. 
So when we read in verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth, the disc, and then at the other extreme, we've already read his name is majestic, or in the, sorry, in the next verse, you have set your glory above the heavens. God over everything that is called a God. God over everything that lives on the earth and in the seas and in the waters as we, we would find again in verse 8. Sovereign over all things. And yet, though he is so great, it is out of the mouths of babes and infants that he can establish his strength. God can use the smallest and the weakest to confound the most powerful and wicked. So this is God who is over everything and can use everything to his ends. And, and so David has done what sometimes you know, we've done. I'm sure that, that pretty much all of us have this kind of experience. You're, you're out at night somewhere away from all the light pollution of the city. And you look up and you just gaze at these stars. And those are the only ones you can see. There's enough of them completely to fill what can look to us like the inside of that sort of disc, the firmament. There's enough of them to fill it with light. Except most of them are so far away that the light hasn't got here yet. This dazzling thing, you know, sometimes you can just see the, the sort of the, 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 the vague sort of uh, presence of, of the Milky Way. Been outside in the country, and you've looked at me, seen shooting stars all over the place, and you feel tiny. You feel absolutely tiny, and yet you feel exactly what the psalmist felt, David felt in Psalm eight. What am I in all this that you should think of me? that you should have made me. See, we feel small in a crowd. Many of us can feel quite lonely in a crowd of people. But multiply that crowd of people again and again and again. And keep on multiplying it. And then set that crowd, that sort of what, five billion of us at the moment, six billion, I don't know. In the context of the heavens, what on earth am I? I'm here for a brief instant. I will leave almost no trace whatsoever. I will create a little heat, as, as the poet Ted Hughes put it. Create a little heat in a, in a layer about six foot deep. For a moment, and I'm gone. And yet, the one who is sovereign over the whole thing, powerful over everything, made you and made you glorious. And because he made you, is mindful of you and of us. In your workplace, if it's a kind of large organization, 
You, you will just be a number. You could come and go and only a few people would notice the difference. God is mindful all the time of us. We don't know the names of most of the people who've ever lived. We don't know what people look like beyond a very, very small group. There are just so many of us. But God is mindful of you. You're always, always on his mind. Never forgets you. Never forgets your birthday. Never forgets your wedding anniversary. Never forgets what's just happened to you. Never forgotten that something's coming up and it's on your mind too. Always mindful of you. And always caring for you. We like to think of ourselves as caring. It's been caring people. And we do care for a very small number of people, relatively speaking. But he cares for all of us. There are no exceptions. It's staggering. So God is sovereign over the heavens in glory. Over all the gods up there. All the things that people like to call a God. God is sovereign over the strong through the little and the weak. God is sovereign effortlessly in creation. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. <laughs> You're like, didn't even need your biceps for this, Lord. You know, fingers would do. Sovereign effortlessly in creation. And sovereign lovingly with human beings. The human beings who are capable of the depravities and rebellion and evil and wickedness of the first seven Psalms. And so he asks this question, you know, what, am I, what is this? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And then in five through eight, we have this astonishing thing that God is so mindful of us and thinks so much of us that he has actually conferred sovereignty. So he has given to human beings a crown. The sovereign confers sovereignty. So if you look at the language of 5 and 6, you see the echoes of 1, verse 1, and of, of, of sovereignty. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Glory, verse 5. Glory, verse, two, verse 1. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So God has conferred. So humanity bears the maker's mark. Humanity carries the image of God. We are the expression of his being. We are a chip off the old block, as we might put it. And so, all those things that he made, the works of his fingers, 
All the things with which he filled the, the spaces that he made, he has put under the dominion of man. So here you get the echoes of Eden. Here you get what God gave Adam to do. To rule it, to have dominion over it, to steward it, to care for it. To be as God would be, but walking around in the garden. Walking around in the world. But of course, Adam and Eve broke it. Well, we didn't break the world. What we broke was the fellowship with God and the relationship with God. And so the image was shattered. There are still glorious and wonderful things about that image. If, 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 you, you know, if you smash a mirror, those shards will still reflect the light. There's still something about human beings. I mean, you just think of, of, of art. You think of literature. You think of what we've done with engineering. You think of, of you know, putting a man on the moon and bringing him back safely. Um, whatever it is, you, you, it, it, we, we are capable of amazing things. Human beings are extraordinary. What we are capable of doing is brilliant. Human creativity and genius is to be celebrated. And at its best, it is just a broken fragment of a mirror that put back together would truly reflect the glory of God on this earth. So God sent a second Adam. God made sent another son of man. God sent somebody who would bear the image faultlessly, who towers above all the rest of humanity in terms of his character and his teaching and his impact, who models for us what the perfect human being should be, but then did the most amazing thing. He took upon himself all the sin of Psalms 1 through 7 so that he might restore humanity to the glories of Psalm 8. Let me read to you from uh, Hebrews chapter 2 where we, we learn that as far as the scriptures are concerned, this is a psalm about us and about the Messiah, the proper man, the true man, the really fully human. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, how refreshing that the writer to the Hebrews couldn't remember the reference. Ah. There is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Now he's speaking there of Jesus. So what is true of humanity in Psalm 8 is truly true of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, 
now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So pulling it all together, what are some of the things that that we might take from Psalm 8? The first is just to repeat the point, perhaps in the words of C.S. Lewis, who said, you will never meet a mere mortal. So the girl at the checkout is not a mere mortal. The people you have to work with are not mere mortals. The bus driver, when you get on that bus to sit down next to somebody and invite them to Alpha, is not a mere mortal. The people you say are not invite to Alpha are not mere mortals. They were made by God and for God. And he cares for them and is mindful of them, verse 4. To the extent that their wrecking of what it means to be a son or daughter of God was why God sent his son so that they could be saved. You're not sitting next to a mere mortal this morning. Those shattered shards can still reflect the glory of the Creator. Um, We ought to be more thrilled to be around in this world than sometimes we are. We of all people on the planet ought to be able to celebrate the brilliance of human beings more than anybody because we see in that a reflection of the Creator's brilliance. The first thing is, in all our depravity and all our abasement that we see in our history and our news each day, never forget that you'll never meet a mere mortal. The second is that our humanity is fully fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 8, when we see it in the scriptures, is not a celebration of people as much as a celebration of God who made us. Psalm 8 doesn't give us one inch to say, we are splendid, we go to our own resources, we get through it, we are resilient, we are splendid. Psalm 8 says, look to Jesus. If you want to understand what we're like, look at Jesus. If you want to understand what the plan is, look at Jesus. And then when we are embattled, going back to the song that we sang, and when we are aware of our own depravity, when we have fallen again into the same sins, when our weakness is paraded before us by the accuser, by the enemy, by the avenger, 
when we think we're making no progress in this Christian life at all. And the older we get, the more we seem to be going backwards. New temptations. A whole new set of sins in later life that just weren't available in younger life. A degree of pride and complacency. A degree of satisfaction in self. A degree of intolerance and impatience. A degree of pessimism and cynicism that were just not available when we were young and idealistic. Bitterness and regrets that can eat us up on the inside. A sense of injustice that the best opportunities in life have passed us by now. A sense of disappointment and defeat that we suddenly realize we've reached the ceiling in our career and this is it. A sense of loss. When we're aware of how glorious we ain't, then we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. The devil will make you look within. Psalm 8, look to Jesus, who bore all that so that you can truly and eternally, immortally be a true daughter and son of God and bear the image in all its radiance. So that picking up on Romans 8, all creation will stand in awe when it sees God's children revealed. And when the glory of God is not simply revealed to us, but Romans 8, 16, revealed in us. In one phrase, take away from Psalm 8, God is glorious. Prepare to be radiant. If you fancy being radiant, don't worry, it's on its way. God's glory will shine from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much to uh, defeat us and bring us down in this world, and uh, the more so as we look within. But we thank you that when we look to you, the glorious one, glorious above the heavens, glorious in your creation, when we look to Jesus, then we have hope. Thank you that the day will come when we will shine with unrestrained, unlimited glory and worship you, adore you, be a joy to you that now seem indescribable. Thank you that this is our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.